I know. I feel like it still tastes the smoked meat in my teeth. I actually, this morning I had another, of course, I start my morning with a cup of my Lopsang smoky tea. And I wondered about using one of those leftover ribs as a teaspoon. Nice. Just stir it in there. Double the smokiness. Delicious. Well, it's a nice chilly day, so it's a good, I hear you guys got a lot of snow. It's even cold um, down here. Yeah, so you have seen my driveway now. Yeah. You know what that driveway is like. And so, yeah, both yesterday this, and this morning was a barely controlled slide down that driveway. And I mean, barely. And it wasn't even that bad. And so we are now in discussions of potentially replacing my car as well, because it also couldn't get up the driveway. I could see that. Oh, anyway. So yeah, it is cold. It is also currently snowing again. And uh, this is the most my Halloween decorations have ever been blanketed with snow. The most after living in Albany for a while? It never came this early. In Michigan? Yeah, I, I have never seen this much this early in adult living memory. Wow. Well, what are we up to today? I believe we are interviewing Raymond Hames, who worked with Napoleon Chagnon. So we're talking to Raymond Hames, who is a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's a human behavioral ecologist. He studies hunter-gatherers, and I should say more generally, I'm familiar with his familiarity with Napoleon Chagnon, and because of Chagnon passing on September 21st, it behooves us to talk to someone with more than passing familiarity to talk about the legacy of his contribution to anthropology. And I should note, for those listening, we're not looking to revisit all the controversy of Chagnon's career and eviscerate him after his demise. I don't think that's fair. No, these are like we did with C. Loring Grace. This is an honoring the person and honoring their contributions to the field. It's an in-memoriam, and Napoleon Chagnon will live on forever in the field of anthropology, both for the, the controversy and for the, the body of work. And by my estimations, regardless of what you think and what you know about the controversy, speaking to those of you listening, he has contributed significantly to the scholarship on hunter-gatherers, and he's worth honoring. Yeah, absolutely. Howdy. Hi, how How are you? I'm good. Freezing. Really cold. About five degrees today. Where are you? Nebraska. Nebraska. Uh, So I'm in Indiana. Uh, at oh. Notre Dame. And so we're, we're a bit warmer than you, but not by much. Like what, seven or eight? <laughs> I think the wind chill might even be, be below that right now. Oh. And uh, we were digging out this morning, which might be the earliest digging out I've had to do. And I grew up in the Midwest. Oh, well, I grew up in, I was born in Los Angeles and grew mm. up in California. Right. So first, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are continuing what seems to be a part of this podcast now, which is a bit of an in-memoriam of anthropologists who have recently passed. Uh, we did a podcast for C. Loring Brace, and we'll be doing one for Frank Marlowe as well. Glad you're going to do Frank, because he's an old friend and wonderful, wonderful person. So today we are going to talk about Napoleon Chagnon and his legacy for the field of anthropology, and he recently okay. passed away. But first, we'd like to start a little bit about you, because we are interviewing you. And we'd like to know your background and kind of how you got into the field of anthropology. Well, probably um, through National Geographic when I was, uh, was a kid. I saw those images of people in faraway places, and it just always uh, intrigued me. 
Went to college, first two years at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, biology major, pretty much lost. And then I decided uh, to go to Santa Barbara for my junior and senior year. I stayed there for my MA and, and PhD. And uh, so I got a good dose of the Michigan School of Anthropology. It was kind of like a, almost a retirement community for <laughs> people who were at uh, Michigan from uh, Elman Service, Leslie White, uh, Al Spaulding, Tom Harding. All those guys were from uh, Michigan and uh, had a big influence uh, on me. I, I got started, you know, in my PhD thesis by writing a uh, research proposal, and it outlined some research I wanted to do in uh, South America on a relatively unacculturated group that focused on economics and ecology and using a lot of uh, input-output behavior observations, weighing kills, and crops and things of that nature. And so my advisor, uh, Elman Service, said, okay, uh, we'll send it around to some of my former students who had done work in South America. And so I did a list of about five people like uh, Bob Carnero, Napoleon Chagnon, and a few others. And everyone wrote back fairly briefly, like maybe, you know, this in the days of uh, IBM Selectric typewriters, about a third of a paragraph, and kind of not much information. Shagnon wrote two single space pages, giving me all sorts of ideas and possibilities. And then the last paragraph was something like, I'm getting together uh, a research team and I need some graduate students who are interested in topics close to what you're interested in, period. Good luck in finding your own group. <laughs> and so... I was, you know, really kind of, you know, elated that he'd taken the time and then very depressed. Well, it turned out he wanted to have a conversation with Elman Service about, you know, my abilities and dedication, et cetera, et cetera. And so about a week later, he sent me a letter inviting me to uh, join his group. He had an NSF and NIH grant and was bringing three graduate students in the field. And so that started my collaboration with him. So that was the 1975 field work that I, I saw referenced? Yes, actually started in 74 early on, and then, yeah, 75 and uh, almost to 76. It was about 18 months in the field. So I know that obviously not the end of your, your story getting there, but since that one of the questions that we wondered about, can you tell us what that was like? Doing field work initially among the Yanomama? Yeah, and working with Shagnon? Well, we had a, a big research team. Uh, Jacques Lizot, the French anthropologist, uh, much maligned and accurately so by uh, Tierney, mm. uh, by the way, mm. uh, was part of the project. The goal was to collect a lot of demographic and genealogical data, settlement pattern data that we would contribute towards the project. And then for a series of co-authored papers, and then also our own thesis research. And so two other graduate students, Ken Good, Eric Fredlin, and we kind of just got dropped off at our various research sites. Also, by the way, uh, Bob Carnero was part of that project. And he spent about maybe six weeks in the field with, uh, with Ken Good. I think probably my immediate introduction to the field was when I was the first one dropped off. And I was dropped off at the end of the Orinoco, such that, you know, beyond that point, passage by dugout was really, really difficult. Lots of rapids, and we had to pass through two rapids to get there. Mm. And then I remember um, seeing the team leave. I'm on the shore, and I'm trudging back up the slope to the Yanomamo village. 
And I'm thinking, okay, here we go. You're all by yourself. <laughs> no shortwave radio back in those days because the uh, Venezuelan authorities didn't permit us to bring them in. They thought we were going to call in the Brazilian soldiers to take over the border area because we're pretty near the border. And so good amount of isolation. But um, the Anamamo treated me really well, very kind. And, you know, the real problem in getting your feet on the ground is learning the language. Mm. And there are two dimensions of it. One is you want to begin to do some real work, right? The other is a tremendous sense of social isolation when you can't talk to people on an everyday basis. And so that was a really kind of great um, motivation to learn the language, just to have some human conversation. I can imagine. But, you know, things went well. And I ultimately, and this had to do with a dispute with Lizo about who had the rights to do certain kinds of research in certain areas. I ended up leaving that and moving in to do my thesis work on the Aquana, a nearby group. But there was kind of a, a drainage, the Padamo, that had about eight Yanomamo villages and one Yaquana village. And there were a bunch of Yanomamo in the village, kind of like as a satellite group. And so I was able to realize the project goals by looking at those people, that drainage, et cetera, et cetera. Learned a lot of Yanomamo, not much Yaquana, because the Yaquana could speak Yanomamo and handling one uh, native language, you know, from bootstrapping was hard enough. Yeah. Uh, and so that was my thesis research. You were kind enough to send us a brand new paper that was out. And I think this, this is a nice segue. It's called Pacifying Hunter-Gatherers, and it's out this year in Human Nature. And Yanomamo have this stereotype from much of the published work as a fierce and warlike people, but you just told us how welcoming they were, and I... Well, well that was to me. So, you know, while I was there, uh, actually, in, in the first place, in Shuimuite, uh, the first place where I was dropped off, and I was there for about two months, there was a false alarm of a raid coming in. And then when I went to the Padamo area, settled in with the Yekwana and the satellite Yanomamo village, about eight weeks after I, I arrived, there was a killing. Uh, five people were killed upstream, and then... About a week later, a bunch of Yanomamo met at my village, and that photograph at, on the Human Nature piece shows a groups, you know, getting together to mount a, a joint attack. So while they were nice to me, they had, you know, fraught relations with some other villages. So your point that you're making in the piece is not that as previously characterized by the Rousseauians, that the ability to cooperate is the derived human adaptation. Yeah, well, what I would say is that, you know, if you look at chimps, and let's assume that uh, or we had a common ancestor, the relationships between neighboring bands is totally hostile. Mm -hmm. They just can't get along. Not true with bonobos, though. They can meet, interact, split apart. It's what Bernard Chappé calls male pacification, actually. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that distinguishes us from, let's say, the common chimpanzees, we can have friendly relations with neighbors. What distinguishes us from bonobos is that the bonobo relationships are really kind of short-lived. There's not exchange of personnel. Uh, we have this kind of exogamy that leads to uh, ties uh, that unite uh, villages together. And so we have that kind of cooperative ability. But the downside of cooperation is that we still have the ability to cooperate 
to commit, you know, warfare. And so we have cooperation that it revolves around, you know, I've, I've written about this, for example, childcare activity. If you look at the Equana, look at two-year-olds or zero to two, uh, moms are only 50%, only spend 50% of the total time in caretaking. Dads hardly any, but siblings, aunts, uh, and grandmothers. So anyway, we've got, you know, cooperative food sharing, uh, cooperative labor, and then also cooperative carnage. And so there's the kind of good side and, and bad side of, uh, of cooperation. But the argument I would make is that our ability to interact with other residential groups on a peaceful, friendly manner and over the long term distinguishes us. It's a kind of like a, a unique human characteristic. You described quite nicely, actually, what your initial field experience was like and the isolation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it was like working with Shagnon himself and then also any insight you might have on why he decided to work with Yanomamo and make it very much his life's work. Boy, well, for the latter question, he just loved field work. And he loved being in the area. He really um, enjoyed the Yanomamo. He had made friends over the years. I know that when I worked with him and we would visit an old village or a village that he had worked in maybe a couple times in the past, everyone was just really happy to see him. And they did a lot of catching up. And so he just really had this 50 months of his life, approximately, spent living with the Yanomamo. I've spent about 30, 32 months of my life, you know, living with the Yanomamo. And, and his was over the long term. And mine was, you know, relatively short term. But he just, he loved field work. And he was really had this kind of interesting project that no one's noted before. He wanted to kind of look at the emergence of the Yanomamo way back in time. You know, the genealogies could take him back to the 1880s, 1870s maybe, the spread of villages through um, geographic space, the fissioning, the coalescences, the wars that went on, uh, the movement, etc. That sort of just really fascinated him mm-hmm. as, a, um, as a project. He's written some on it, uh, but nothing, you know, as kind of rich as he could have written on it. And if he would have lived longer, that would have been, I think, a major goal. And then what about your experience working with him? Pretty much um, all business. We both like being in the field. We both like to camp. And we thought, you know, we worked really well as a team. And we had our differences. We had fights in the field. We separated for a while until <laughs> tempers cooled. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, uh, it was a good relationship. I worked with him on four consecutive field trips uh, among the Yanomama because we had a joint NSF grant. You know, he really knew his way around the jungle. I learned a lot from him. I enjoyed field work too. I don't think as much as he did, but <laughs> nevertheless, you know, you had a job to do. A lot of people say, you know, well, how could you tolerate, you know, the terrible food, freeze-dried food, Yanomoa food is, if you like, plantains peeled and roasted in ashes, not much the way of spices, the bugs, everything else. And I keep telling people that they kind of underestimate their ability to adapt when they're there for a reason, they have a job to do, and that that sort of thing can overcome a lot of the, the discomfort, such that discomfort becomes really normal. So Shagnon has in part created his own legacy through his autobiography, but certainly Tierney's book did a number as well. And I wonder what you see as his legacy on balance. Like, what's he going to become known for 
Well, I, I think, you know, one thing that he's definitely going to be known for is the foundational pioneer in the establishment of behavioral ecology in anthropology and kind of trying to realize that a lot of people misunderstand this, a holistic view of human behavior that takes culture strongly into consideration as well as our evolutionary history and, and biology. And so that's one thing. Uh, the book he edited with, uh, with Irons in 1979 mm -hmm. uh, was surely a good example of it. The uh, sessions he held actually in 1978, I think, at the American Anthropological Association, where he had a couple sessions that talked about, you know, at that point it was called sociobiology. Although we kind of broke from Wilson a bit because he had defined the field in a way that we were uncomfortable with mm. in terms of saying such things as all hunter-gatherers were territorial, which we know is like false. Mm. You know, they're variably territorial, some are, some not. So he was really important in that area and then doing research that tried to apply evolutionary thinking to the study of human social behavior. So I would think that is one thing. His research on warfare clearly would be another kind of contribution he made. And then his interest in genealogies and demography and marriage patterns. So I think those are some of the legacies, if you will, that he's had. And also he's put a number of different students into the field who are interested in, you know, kind of that holistic view of anthropology. One thing that really bothers me is this ridiculous claim that Chagnon was somehow a reductionist. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't. He was trying to integrate all the fields of anthropology. And so anytime you would suggest that evolutionary theory is useful, you're referred to as a reductionist, even though, for example, he talked about the Yanomamo culture, his emphasis on being a warrior, being a leader, those individuals were honored. You know, that's something straight out of their culture. And he talks about it in terms of you want to achieve high status, then you have to meet those cultural expectations in order to achieve high status. You mentioned, too, uh, earlier in your notes to me, uh, the kind of problem that Margaret Mead had mm -hmm. uh, with Freeman. And I see some, you know, really remarkable parallels in in their lives both you know really prominent anthropologists and you know you have these detractors in one case tyranny in the other case freeman who i think paul shankman totally undermines everything that that freeman had to say about uh, mead and the thing that really angered me it, it encouraged me to look at mead stuff more closely and for an anthropologist doing research in the 30s she was pretty damn good her work in New Guinea, not so much, but her work on Samoa, I think so. And what I think all of us need to realize is that, you know, anthropology was beginning as a science. Uh, it takes a while for it to mature, for us to get our field methods correct, to learn from the mistakes of our, our predecessors. And I, I really feel almost as sad for Margaret Mead as I feel for Matt in the ways in which they were both unfairly and unjustifiably criticized. You know, there, there's criticism that is like legitimate. You know, you needed a larger sample size or you really didn't clarify this hypothesis. You know, that's that's fine, you sure. know. And, and I've, I have publications where, you know, 
I sure rewrite them and do a better statistical analysis today uh, than I did in the uh, in the past. And Shagnon had that, you know, attitude of, you know, this is how I think it works. And here's my data. And, you know, criticize that. And I think a good example of that was when um, our Brian Ferguson noted some problems in his analysis of the, of the UNUKI data, where he didn't control for age. And so what he did was he pretty much immediately responded, controlled for age and said, okay, good point, but see the, the relationship still, still holds between number of wives and, and, and fertility for, for males. You hit some points that are sort of personal to me. I work in Samoa and the folks there, they don't read Margaret Mead, they read Derek Friedman. So the legacy, yeah. So the legacy that he left continues to taint her reputation among Samoans. Uh, That's what I was curious about in terms of your perspective on Shagnon's work. And, And I think in both cases, if you read the work, you do see that desire to be holistic and integrative, whether they tended more to come from a cultural side or a evolutionary side, the theory is definitely being integrated with local cultural knowledge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is what we're all looking for. So our sort of point here is not to relive the controversy, but to hear exactly what you're saying, like from the perspective of someone who worked with them, what's the quality of expert, of scientist, of anthropologist did we just lose? Well, we had another NSF project that just ended uh, last year, and it was to archive his data. It'll be at the University of Michigan. So people can play with it, do reanalyses, you know, check his conclusions. How many anthropologists have done that? Yeah. You know, put their data up for grabs and say, okay, you know, if you can do a better job, or if you can find something that hidden or some new kind of theory arises, here's some data that may be useful for you to, uh, to check out. And that was pretty much his idea. I had some other things to do. I wanted to kind of like, there, there's some great things to um, uh, test with the data that, that have to do with marriage and, and kinship. And uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Mark Flynn, said, you know, what you really need to do is to archive his brain. Yeah. Because of, you know, all the stuff he knows. And, you know, as we go through the genealogical data, you know, I knew some of the people and some of the actors because I'd done research in about seven villages that overlapped with his, probably total 12 villages that I've, that I've, that I've worked in. Uh, and, and that's another thing, too, just, just a bit of an aside. He just didn't focus on one or two villages. It's just not Visasateri and where, where um, he first started work and later Mishi Mishi Mambuiteri. He's, you know, probably visited up to 30 different villages. And so he was concerned with regional variation and the kind of bigger picture. And so in any event, his um, importance, I, I think, you know, is, is manifested in that kind of approach he took. My impression of him, having never met him or Margaret Mead for that matter, but from hearing talks and reading their works, they both seem to have been larger than life personalities. And that may be to some extent where some of the cultural attack or the from the field, the they seem to, as you pointed out, if you use evolution, you tend to get accused of being a reductionist, but he seemed to be willing to engage in those debates. Well, he, I, I think he enjoyed being controversial. You're exactly right there. And also, he wasn't afraid to confront people. And he didn't mince his words. 
and he had a hefty opinion of himself <laughs> as, a, uh, as a field worker and, you know, well-earned. But, you know, nevertheless, I thought he was a really good scientist uh, because if you read a lot of his stuff, especially, for example, I just had to read it over again, the, the 1988 publication on, on Unokais. He posits three or four hypotheses to account for some of these revenge patterns. And he says, this is what it looks like to me. Uh, but he didn't say that with any kind of final authority. Uh, but it's kind of like, here's the data. And so reflect on it, uh, think about it, et cetera, et cetera. So, and if you read that paper again, it's essentially built around Bill Irons's idea of cultural success and reproductive success. Mm. And what Bill said is that each culture has a certain set of statuses. Uh, it could be that you're a, um, a good shaman, a good reconciler, a good warrior, a good hunter, but they emphasize certain kind of key things that you have to do, which very frequently tend to be pro-social. So a culture kind of sets up the achievement structure for a society. And he points out that the people who really achieve also tend to uh, maybe be polygynous, have lots of kids etc cetera, etc cetera. and so for example uh, eric smith has looked at this and you know in hunting and gathering societies being a good hunter is really important well it turns out that good hunters you know have higher fertility uh, but good hunters also are contributing more to the common wheel than anybody else because they're required to share their the resources so and, and this kind of relates to um the the marxists that shagna had battled and he kind of like the Marxian approach because it was on solid grounds talking about, you know, economic issues as being really important and driving forces in human behavior. But he believed that not everything could be reduced to, uh, here we have that word reductionism, mm -hmm. but anyway, to protein consumption in Amazonia or agricultural land in New Guinea, although he thought that competition over scarce resources in New Guinea in terms of agricultural land was definitely uh, a cause of warfare. And, you know, cross-cultural research by, by Mel Ember has kind of shown that's, that's the case. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, his approach to, to Marxism was, was kind of like in this quip, uh, a little bit blue, but he says, you know, Marxian theory uh, has guts, but doesn't have any balls <laughs> uh, because it didn't focus on the reproductive consequences. Right. Uh, and uh, so he was trying to bring that in reproduction, uh, which is very Darwinian, as well as productive activities, which, again, is Darwinian. Mm -hmm. uh, but you kind of have to think of those things to uh, together. Well played metaphor there. I think uh, to wrap things up, we have listeners who are new to the field of anthropology. We have listeners who have been in the field for longer than I've been alive. And we have listeners who have nothing to do with anthropology whatsoever. So okay. I'd like you to play to the listeners who have no clue who Napoleon Chagnon may be, and maybe sum up really briefly what Chagnon may have done for them. Why his work might be important to somebody who knows nothing about anthropology and cares nothing about anthropology. One thing that is, I don't think, fully appreciated is that when he wrote about the Yanomamo, he gave real life examples to illustrate, and this kind of like humanistic dimension of his writings, I think makes the Yanomamo much more accessible because you begin to see in these stories how much they're like us, uh, their patterns of, of, of grieving, their anger leading to revenge, the care of their children. Uh, if you look at some of his videos too, 
I would encourage them to do that. For example, a husband and wife weave a hammock or a man washes his children. The, these kind of like personal vignettes really, I think, humanize the Yanoma. Well, the, the spectacular ones like the axe fight and the feast, you know, uh, things of that nature, you know, are, I think, overemphasized. Mm. And you look at the kind of kinder dimensions of Yanomama life. But at the same time, you know, he did focus on warfare and politics. And so that rough and tumble tribal world, which is identical to our tribal world, you know, uh, people mm -hmm. defend their political beliefs uh, no, matter, no matter what. I think you stated it well, because your, your description of it makes it sound like a really good subject for the type of television that we find so compelling. The human side, the political side, the warfare side, he conveyed it in a way that was captivating, and that's why his, his works are among the classics in our field. Yeah, and, and also the other thing is, is loyalty, tribalistic loyalty is not something that existed in the Stone Age. It exists today. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see it clearly in the, because the Yanomam will never forget who mistreated their relatives, killed them, et cetera, et cetera. And they are, you know, as loyal as any group today. Uh, and uh, kind of like, you know, so-and-so may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. And so we're going to support him. And so this kind of local chauvinism that we see in the United States is expressed um, nicely among the Yanomama, which says that they're like us and we're like them. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms Human of, connection. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could go down a big wormhole on that one for sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with us today. Is there any way if people ever want to chat with you or send messages or anything, any form of social media that you're willing to share? You know, I have a got an email address. I'm on Facebook. I lurk on Twitter, but I've only posted one thing in three years, <laughs> uh, which was a, there was a really nice piece done, I think, in the conversation or Quillette by a person who kind of re-examined the Harris-Shagnon debate. So my only peep on Twitter has been to say, nice article, but <laughs> I, I don't do social media. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, my email address, or you can find me easy enough on Facebook. Well, that's why we're here. We do social media for those who who do and don't. Okay. Well, yes. you'll, be, you'll be the portal. We'll <laughs> be the portal. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk okay. to us. Well, thank you for the interest. And I wrote a, um, a memoriam that's going to appear in the uh, Anthology News mm. on Shagdown probably in the next uh, month or so. And then I'll probably write another one a little bit different for EAS. And then also Bill Irons and Mark Flynn and I are working for a really kind of long examination of his work that will be published in Evolution and Human Behavior. Nice. We'll keep an eye out for those and link them to this podcast as well once uh, they come out. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? I definitely am. I'm on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. I'm also on Instagram at Cheech Sweet. I am on Twitter mostly retweeting and publicizing this podcast at Kara Akabak. Um, let's give out a huge thank you to Caroline Owens, who makes us sm smound. See, this is how she'll make us sound smart <laughs> and eloquent. And to the Human Biology Association for supporting the podcast. We have been the Sausage of Science. We thank you all for listening. Please like us, share us, and rate us.